Hello, listeners. Before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about a survey that we're running so that you can give your feedback on the show. If you could spare just a couple of minutes to help us out, we'd really appreciate it. Just click the link in the episode description or go to thisstudyshows.com. I'm Mariano Hotter. I'm Dan George. And I'm Nancy Knowlton. This week on the podcast, we're bringing you a collaboration between This Study Shows and the Earth Optimism Alliance. So a big welcome to our guest co-host, Dr Nancy Knowlton. Nancy is one of the brilliant minds that started the global Earth Optimism movement. It's, quote, a global movement aimed at fundamentally changing how we frame, discuss and deliver conservation on the ground, in workplaces and in our everyday lives. And they focus on highlighting stories of hope. So, Nancy, before we dig into what Earth Optimism is and all the great work going on around the world, could you first introduce yourself and tell us about your work? Sure. I'm a coral reef scientist, at least originally. I'm now uh, quote-unquote retired, but that doesn't seem to have stopped <laughs> me from working. Uh, and I'm, in fact, I'm still wrapping up some research projects. But more and more, I'm spending most of my time uh, working on conservation successes, finding them, trying to understand them and publicizing them. Oh, Brill, thanks so much for joining us this week, Nancy. We're really excited to hear all about the origins of Earth Optimism Alliance and why you think that positivity is the best communication strategy. And, uh, and you brought along some inspiring case studies to share with our listeners, right? Yes, I wanted to share with your listeners some examples of the kinds of things that could be defined as uh, Earth Optimism. At our Earth Optimism summits, we often have conservationists and researchers share their stories of hope. And so I've selected three success stories to highlight some of the great work that's going on there. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. But first of all, let's just go back to the beginning. Um I mean, I think we're all pretty familiar with those stories of doom and gloom about, you know, the apocalyptic future that we're all facing when it comes to climate science, biodiversity, habitat loss, extinct species, all the rest of it. I mean, it, it kind of, for me, makes me remember just how serious the situation we're facing is. But when did you start to think that optimism was actually a better approach? Well, I have to say that I did also grow up in the kind of doom and gloom world. As I mentioned, I'm a coral reef biologist. And when I started off in the mid-1970s, I've been at this for a while now, uh, <laughs> the reefs were in pretty good shape on the north coast of Jamaica, which is where I did my uh, doctoral research. And uh, we took those reefs for granted uh, because they didn't seem to be in trouble. Now, we knew there was overfishing, but the corals looked beautiful. And then within about a decade... Uh, the corals were all gone. We went from 70% living coral to 10% living coral, really, wow. over the wow. course of just a few years. So it's not like I started off all cheerful. Very early on <laughs> in my career, I saw how quickly and a whole ecosystem can really uh, fall to pieces. But eventually, uh, I found myself at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego, and I was involved in setting up a new program, which was focused on training students to uh, 
create solutions for the problems that the ocean had. And we would always lecture these students uh, at the beginning. In fact, they were from a variety of fields, not just biologists, but also climate scientists, economists, anthropologists. So we started off every summer uh, with a bunch of introductory lectures just to get everyone more or less on the same page. And we'd start those lectures with the terrible things that were going on in the ocean, not just coral reefs, but overfishing and dead zones, Mm. you name it. There's plenty of bad news. And we did that for a number of years. And eventually I came to doubt this way of starting the course um, because I thought of the, the class really as or the whole program as kind of medical school for the ocean. But in medical school, you don't teach students to write obituaries, even though we all wind up with obituaries. Uh, uh. Uh, so I thought, well, why are we training our students to to write ever more refined obituaries of the ocean? And so that really is where I, I started thinking about focusing on the solutions rather than the problems, began with a, a series of um, s- symposia called Beyond the Obituaries, Success Stories in Ocean Conservation. And then with some colleagues, we launched a Twitter campaign, hashtag Ocean Optimism. And that's what eventually led to the Earth Optimism program at the Smithsonian. And how successful was that hashtag Ocean Optimism? Were people like, oh, this is really great and got on board with it? Or were they a bit like, What? There's nothing to be optimistic about. (laughs) Well, actually, when we first started the Beyond the Obituaries Symposia, I did have a colleague write me and say, you can't spend a whole day on success stories in ocean conservation. There aren't that many. And in the end, we had so many that no one was allowed to talk for for more than six minutes. And, um, And so initially there was some skepticism. That was in 2009. By 2014, when we launched Hashtag Ocean optimism, there is a lot more enthusiasm. And uh, it has gone viral in a modest sort of way. About 45,000 different Twitter accounts have used it. And it still remains, uh, interestingly enough, a really good way to find ocean success stories on Twitter because people use it to flag them. Oh, brilliant. Nancy, do you worry sometimes that focusing on optimism, even though it's obviously a, a kind of a necessary counterpoint to all the doom and gloom, might give some people a pass and they kind of go, oh, look, here's a happy story about coral reefs. Here's another happy story about humpback whales or, you know, whatever it is. I don't need to worry now. It's probably fine. I actually do worry about it and I'm pretty careful about how I use optimism whenever I give a talk or a presentation or write an article. I always... Uh, remind people at the beginning that we have huge problems. And I remind people at the very end, uh, don't forget, we do have huge problems. Uh, But I fill the bulk of it with stories of success because I find that most people are unaware of a lot of these stories. And even so, they tend to get washed out in all the negative news that's out there. So it's really important to put a spotlight on them so people pay attention to them. Since changing that strategy, as I say, initially for for sort of educational reasons, but now uh, in my public talks, it's much more successful. For decades, I gave lectures with titles like Coral Reefs, the Canary in the Environmental Coal Mine. And, uh, and many people my age did the same thing because we were watching ocean ecosystems fall apart all around us. Uh, And those initial efforts to alert the world to the scale of the problem were really important. And I think they're still important to to have those when you have a new study that shows that something's really, really bad. People need to know about it. It's just that 
social scientists, for example, have have uh, studied how communication works quite extensively in, in terms of problems and solutions. And their research shows very, very clearly that if you give people a huge problem but no solutions, it tends to lead to apathy, not action. And I find the same thing whenever I uh, make presentation these days as well. Yeah. yeah. So people become more engaged. Absolutely. We heard from Per Espen Stockness in series two of this study shows, and he was talking all about apocalypse fatigue and how that basically kills engagement and that there are pretty simple ways, including telling optimistic, positive stories, which people can engage with and see themselves in, you know, kind of embed into their identity of what kind of a person they are. And then all of a sudden they are in it. You know, they're one of the soldiers kind of fighting for the cause. Sure, I think that's really. I think that's a really uh, good point. And as I say, I've found this myself over and over again. I've had, I don't know how many students come up to me after my public talks saying, you know, I almost left conservation because it was such a depressing field. And it's your work that has made me realize it's worth going on. Yeah. Now, Nancy, tell us, how did we go from ocean optimism to the Earth Optimism Alliance? And tell us a little bit more about the summits that you organize as well. Sure. So when I uh, moved from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography to the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, it it was at a time at the Smithsonian where people were becoming increasingly interested in growing the conservation activities at the Smithsonian. It's not that there wasn't a lot of conservation going on, but it was scattered around different parts of the Smithsonian. It's a very big organization. And so there were some brainstorming sessions about how to make the whole greater than the sum of its parts. And so after listening to my colleagues say, you know, we really need to reach the public in terms of what we're doing and conservation activities generally. I said, I told the story of ocean optimism and how it had been this idea that was hatched at this tiny little workshop uh, on the outskirts of London and had grown to be so successful. And And that success revealed a real hunger for hearing about positive stories. And so I sort of threw out, I, at the end, I said, well, we could have an Earth Optimism Summit. <laughs> Little did I know <laughs> that it would consume the better part of the next two years of my life and create a lot of anxiety, but it was all worth it in the end. <laughs> so That's amazing. So it was just a, like an off the top of your head suggestion. It was. Oh, my goodness. It was. Well, I mean, of course, it's something I've been thinking about, yeah. but that's where off the top of your head usually comes from something deeper down. But um, so we had the first summit in 2017 and we had another big summit in 2020, of course, because of the pandemic. That one was virtual. And the Cambridge Conservation Initiative has also had Earth Optimism summits uh, in 2017 and 2021. And there have been a lot of online optimism events as well by partners actually all around the world. And so it's gotten to be a, a kind of regular part of conservation programming. It's now gone from being like once a year big summit sort of situation to a a growing collection of people. And that's really what the Earth Optimism Alliance is. Uh, It's uh, centered at the Smithsonian and Cambridge, but we have many, many partners all around the world working with us on this. Mm. And it's a great way of sort of storytelling, isn't it? So I think it's probably time for our first optimism story. Um, Nancy, do you want to introduce this one for us, please? So this is a story of health and harmony. It's an organization that was founded by Dr. Kinnery Webb with the aim to reduce deforestation. 
The project started out in Indonesia and has now expanded to Madagascar and Brazil as well. The story is told by the Health and Harmony Program Director, Ashley Emerson. Gunung Palang National Park is a truly majestic rainforest. And, you know, from the periphery or once you dip down in under the canopy, you know, the, the most present thing you hear are the gibbons who just have this beautiful call, this kind of whooping howl back and forth to one another. And you can see them kind of playing and swinging from the trees. And it's really just this beautiful symphony of, of life. In Gurung in addition to, you know, all of the beauty and the sounds I just described, you know, you often also heard chainsaws. And so, you know, it was a place that, you know, was under a great deal of pressure from surrounding communities who were cutting down the forest. Back in 2007, our founder, Dr. Kinnery Webb, uh, initiated Health and Harmony, established it as an organization, as well as our sister organization, Alam Sehat Lestari. We began working with about 120,000 community members, over 30 villages that were oftentimes logging illegally in the national park, and they were doing it to pay for health care. And so Kinnery and the team went into communities surrounding the forest and said, you are the guardians of this precious rainforest. What do you need from the rest of the world as a thank you to be able to steward and protect it? And communities then design solutions. And so all of the work that we do alongside communities is created by them. And that's such a critical part of our, of our work is really reminding people that indigenous traditional and rainforest community voices need to be at the forefront of developing solutions. They designed uh, medical clinics, they designed medical outreach where communities could easily access high quality medical care. At the same time, they pay for their health care with non-cash means. So there's never a financial barrier for people to access the health care. The most popular payment method is seedlings. And that's brilliant because the seedlings are then used in reforestation in the national park. We looked at the first 10 years of data from this site from 2007 to 2017 and found that these community design solutions led to a 67% decrease in infant mortality, a 90% reduction in households that were logging illegally in the park, 21,000 hectares of forest regrew and rewild after we saw a stabilization and then regrowth of forest. So really that these interventions are boundless and the return on investment we know is at least 12-fold. Given the success in Gunung Palang National Park, you know, we've been able to prove efficacy of the model. We've replicated it in two new countries and three new rainforest sites, and we're trying to scale this quickly. The forests we work in, investing in community design solutions are flourishing. Wow. I mean, that is that is pretty impressive. And the, the idea that empowerment really matters, it's that win-win solutions are possible and the result is a positive news story about the rainforest. Yes, I, I love that story. In fact, I first heard it during the initial Earth Optimism Summit when Dr. Kinnery Webb presented it. I find it so powerful because of of the connection to the people 
and and the people who benefit. And she, in fact, in that presentation, she talks about radical listening, how she spent much of the initial time just talking to people and actually just listening what to find out what they needed. It's it's really a a perfect example of the importance of of the bottom up local connection for making conservation success happen. Yeah. And it's about sort of motivating individuals, isn't it? You know, we, we heard a lot there about the communities designing the solutions as well. So so you're motivating individuals because they are getting something from it too. Of course, they're, they're saving the environment, which is brilliant, but they're also getting something individually, personally from it as well. Yes, they're not only are they getting something, it's they're getting something that they have said that they wanted. And I have to say in reviewing conservation successes, which I've now done quite a bit of, uh, really from to some extent from an academic perspective, and re- read a lot of articles that reviewed various kinds of successes in ocean conservation, forest conservation, you name it, they almost always have this element of of deep participation by the local community. Yeah. One of the things that struck me about what Ashley just said was that they have at least a 12 times return on investment. I mean, that is just astonishing. Even if you don't really care about, you know, the rainforest in and of itself, if you don't really care about the the health and well-being of people who live in rainforest communities, the economic argument is just profound. You go, oh, okay, well, that's a really good way to save everybody money and, and get something really positive out of it. Yeah, it's a win-win with all capital letters. (laughs) Now, Nancy, could we have our next story of Earth Optimism, please? The next story I wanted to share is one of a 20-year project to restore the seagrass habitat in Chesapeake Bay. This story is brought to you by Jonathan Lefchek from the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. There was an interesting study that came out a couple of years ago that looked at the prevalence of different ecosystems, different biomes in popular song lyrics. And expectedly, rivers and mountains and valleys were all at the very top of this list. Seagrasses, wouldn't you know it, very bottom. (laughs) In fact, they were lumped in with algae, pond scum, you know, the stuff that you see floating on the tops of, of lakes and rivers and things like that. Seagrasses just aren't out in the public consciousness yet, even though we know they're incredibly valuable systems that provide huge services to humanity. You know, here in the Chesapeake, uh, the mid-Atlantic region of of the Western Atlantic, there's one particular species of seagrass called eelgrass, or Zostromorina, is the scientific name, and tends to grow close to shore. So you could stand on the beach and look out, and it's essentially an underwater meadow. You just see the blades kind of waving gently in the surf if if the water clarity is good. The mid-Atlantic region here in the United States is really interesting, and I think people are already familiar with it because it was, of course, the first site of a permanent European settlement in North America, that being Jamestown. It's really interesting to go back and read some of the contemporary literature. John Smith of the Pocahontas legend He referred to it as a natural paradise. He said, uh, and I quote, heaven and earth never agreed better to frame a place for man's habitation. In the 1930s, there was a combination of pandemic wasting disease and hurricanes that completely wiped out seagrass in these coastal bays. And for 70 years, they remained completely barren, just mud. 
seagrasses from other populations outside of these coastal bays weren't reaching the lagoons either through seeds or natural expansion. They just couldn't reach it. Uh, the, the openings of these bays are very narrow to the ocean. And so it kind of has to be the right conditions to suck that those seeds or those plants through that opening and then get them to establish inside these lagoons. It wasn't until the late 1990s that there were some reports of actual seagrass living, just small patches, in these coastal bays. And that led my colleague and mentor, Bob Orth, who's at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, to initiate a seed-based restoration, where he would go around and collect seeds from other populations, like places in the Chesapeake Bay, and then he would bring them out and essentially just throw them into the, the bare patches and see what happened. And lo and behold, you know, seagrass exploded. So I think it's fair to say that there was essentially no seagrass there in the 1990s. So zero acres. And we, we've now reestablished, you know, through the efforts of all these programs, over 9,000 acres of seagrass. My real interest coming to this project was to see, uh, is life recovering? We have this wonderful habitat. We've built this habitat. Will they come? And the answer is yes. I've been swimming and seen sea turtles. I've seen six-foot sandbar sharks. There's all manner of diverse, abundant life that's in these bays now as a consequence of all of this seagrass that's been restored. Oh, it's great. It is such a positive story, isn't it? But, but I think, as an academic myself, I think part of the issue I have in my head with this one is the the time and the commitment it involves as well. You know, we heard from Jonathan there, you know, from the 1990s, they've, they've worked on this. It's a passion of theirs and they've worked on the same thing. Do you think, Nancy, this is at odds with academic culture, which sometimes really encourages people to move on from their institution or for, from that one project or go abroad or, you know, go to an, another institution? in order to be seen as that well-rounded academic. I think this project is interesting from a scientific perspective in that there's actually a lot of really good science in it. We've spent, as a, as a human race, we've spent a lot of money and time doing bad restoration, which hasn't worked. And so these restoration projects are not... Uh, are not free of scientific research. And in fact, some very interesting science is applied to figure out how to make these kinds of recoveries happen. Uh, and I, I think for the scientists themselves, it really depends on what they see as their career path. Some of them uh, are working on fairly straightforward academic uh, career paths where they are dependent on grants that come in every couple of uh, years. Others have long-term commitments to particular projects, and they piece together money from not only things like the National Science Foundation, but also various conservation groups. So it, it really depends. I mean, Jonathan himself has a very active research career. That's not. He, this is not the only thing he does. He does mm -hmm. a lot of other really cool science, and uh, similarly with his advisor. So what is required in terms of time and commitment is the the actual actions. And that means, you know, 20 years of uh, support from local people and also from state and yeah. uh, federal agencies. And it's it's time and it's um, 
and it's also money. It's not it's not cheap doing this kind of mm. thing. And so it's more of a the the project is bigger than any single scientist, I would say. Uh, and that's its strength. But of course, it does mean that it needs that kind of long term commitment for to keep it going as well. How important is optimism, do you think, Nancy, in order to protect researchers working in environmental science from you know, crashing and burning, you know, just the, the sense that they're kind of chipping away at a, a kind of a relentless, enormous solution that is way bigger than their bit of work, even if their work is going well. I think it, it depends to some extent on how much tolerance you have for uh, delayed gratification and setbacks <laughs> right. and uh, reversals <laughs> and bad news sort of popping up, because that's the way conservation is. It's a, it's always a, a one-step forward two step back, then three steps forward, one step back. I mean, it's 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 a bumpy road. Uh, but I definitely think that the success is what keeps people going. And so there's a real phenomenon of uh, burnout among conservationists because they get so overwhelmed by the all the bad news. And there's as there is plenty of bad news and there will continue to be bad news. Mm-hmm. But if you can remember that that there is things that are working and that you can play a role in making them work. That's what keeps you going. I know for speaking personally, I try not to start my day without a piece of good news. And I try not to end my day without a piece of good news. Oh. And um, and I find personally, at least, that's very beneficial. But as, as I mentioned earlier, students um, routinely come up to me and say this the reason they're still in conservation is because they realize they can't make a difference. Oh, that's, oh, cool. that's good. I remember yeah, you, good advice. Yeah, really good advice. I heard you begin a, a, a talk once sort of saying, you know, Martin Luther King didn't start with, I have a problem. He started with, I have a dream. And I was like, oh, yeah. Good point, Nancy. <laughs> it's all about how you frame Absolutely. the question, how you frame the action. And that's what gets people on side. And, you know, kind of with the, the, the zeal and the passion and the energy to keep going, like you say, on a very bumpy road. Let's have our final story of Earth Optimism. Nancy, what have you got for us? So the final story I wanted to share with you is the Wild Sevy Project, which has found a way to reduce human-wildlife conflict on the fringes of Indian national parks. My name is Dr. Kriti Karanth. I'm a conservation scientist with the Center for Wildlife Studies in India. For more than a decade, we've done research on human-wildlife conflict across India, and our research established that India is a high wildlife, high conflict country. What do I mean by that? Uh, we have about a 80 to 100,000 incidents on average reported to the government. This is people losing crops, uh, livestock, being injured, occasionally being killed and having property damaged by interactions with large animals like elephants, uh, tigers, bears, leopards. Our work established that fortunately the Indian government had set up a compensation payment system where if you uh, did have a, a injury or loss, you could file a claim and you would get some value to replace what you've lost. That's when we decided that we needed to go beyond identifying human wildlife conflict to actually trying to solve it. In 2015, we launched the Wild Save program. It's a toll-free number that's circulated to more than 600 villages around two of India's premier parks. 
If you have a leopard on your roof or an elephant in your farm, you call us. Our field staff arrive at the scene. They help assess the damage, assemble the documentation for the claim to be considered valid, and track it to ensure that people's claims are not rejected. Thanks to our efforts over the last uh, five and a half years, we filed more than eighteen thousand claims, and people have received an estimated eight hundred. Thousand U.S. dollars back from the government, and although you know uh, financial compensation doesn't solve everything, it does certainly help make make sure that people don't get frustrated, angry, and you know retaliate by poisoning livestock carcasses or running electric wires that will electrocute elephants. I think you know you see gratitude in people's eyes. You you feel the appreciation. And um, the levels of frustration that we used to hear about has visibly gone down, right? And uh, I think for us, particularly those of us who live in big cities, we really don't appreciate the the cost of living next to a tiger or a leopard or a elephant. We often romanticize this and the hardships we don't face. And when you really uh, look at these people who live with these big animals they are truly marginalized often have very limited in- incomes and face a lot of hardship so just even helping them a little bit enabling them a little bit i think goes a long way in making their lives better what struck me about this one nancy was how easy it is to be kind of rose tinted about living somewhere with wild tigers and then the reality of, you know, being a subsistence farmer, living with wild tigers is, you know, tricky. Yeah, I, I thought it was really striking. She said, if, you know, if you have a problem with a leopard on your roof, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, where I live here in rural Maine, there's plenty of wildlife, but we're mostly worried about porcupines. So uh, it's, a cold, it's a whole different uh, kettle of fish, as they say. And, and it's and important to, for uh, those of us who are not living with dangerous wildlife to really recognize the sacrifices that people make in order to allow the wildlife to live with them, is, which is really what is happening. And they need to not suffer costs. And in fact, in the final analysis, they really need to, to have benefits associated with it. Mm-hmm. And and in, in many cases, those benefits can be found through, for example, uh, ecotourism, which has brought higher incomes to many people around the world which where wildlife and people live side by side. I think there was a really nice story there about positive action. You could understand why the local people were very frustrated. It's not the animal's fault, it's not their fault, but you know there is frustration, but let's take some positive action about something and it's led to a reduction in frustration about the situation. Absolutely. And and I'd say most of these conservation problems. Some of them are more complicated than others, of course. But if you think hard about it, you usually can figure out a way of taking steps to make things better for both people and wildlife. How much do you think that's a a kind of a step change in terms of messaging and maybe focus for researchers about conservation? Because I feel like even in my kind of adult lifetime working in science journalism, we've moved from a kind of we should care about and protect the environment for the environment's sake to what feels more the case now, which is here are the human benefits, here are the ways that this will help us. Um, and I sometimes worry that that we're kind of pandering to 
how selfish and short-termist and thoughtless humans actually are, that we have to go, there's something in it for you. And I don't mean subsistence farmers on the uh, you know outskirts of a, a national park in India. I mean kind of us more generally. I think that's a good description of the history of how things are viewed. But I'd, I'd say that it it has gone beyond that so that we started off about, about really just focusing on wildlife for wildlife's sake. Then we, as you mentioned, turned to a situation where, you know, well, what can we, how can we as human beings benefit from wildlife? I, I do feel there's now a growing appreciation again for the, integration of humans and wildlife with both having a legitimate and valued place on the planet. Right. So it's not an either or. Yeah, I think one big part of that is the growth of um, indigenous voices in conservation, because they often have a very different way of thinking about the natural world than Western societies do. I've really enjoyed listening to to your story, Nancy, um, and and the three stories there. And it does give me a feeling of optimism for the individual stories. You can see how they've made a difference locally to what they're doing. Marianne, are you convinced that optimism is a is a good communication strategy? Yeah. I mean so, <laughs> I'm I'm quite Eeyore-ish in my approach generally. Um and so I, I do worry I do worry that that kind of too much optimism will help those people who have their heads in the sand or people who are just in complete denial that there's, you know, a pretty existential problem uh, that we we all need to be kind of getting in the, the harness to face. You know, as Greta Thunberg says, the house is very much on fire. But I like Nancy's approach, Nancy. I love your approach where you kind of go, okay, the frame is... Yeah, there are serious problems, but here are the good news things. Here are the things that work. Let's share the best practice. Let's invigorate the energy of the people who are actually achieving solutions to, to make things better. I, I think there has to be a, a kind of a balance. Nancy, what would you say the lessons might be to take out of Earth optimism and into other research fields where where researchers want to collaborate across the network of the world or perhaps communicate more positively and proactively with the public or policymakers? Well, I think one of the things about Earth Optimism is the importance of story. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that's really interesting about conservation success is it conforms to a classic, almost Hollywood-style hero's journey mm -hmm. where an individual or a small group of people re are are living their lives, but then they recognize there's a big problem and they go through a period of turmoil and stress and failure and setbacks and obstacles, but they eventually come out on the other side and then they re-enter their sort of normal world, but things are improved. And the power of that story is, is really universal. And I think one of the things that's really important about telling these stories is allowing people to envision themselves being part of a of a similar story. You mentioned that some of these success stories seem so, you know, local and small scale. And with the biodiversity, we really are facing two big crises on the planet, the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. Mm. Now, the climate crisis, a lot of the success is going to come from high up you know, top-down government action rather than individual efforts. But when it comes to the biodiversity crisis, you really can't uh, escape 
the need to engage uh, local communities in being part of the solution. So, and that is really going to be the story, the many, many stories of people deciding to make a difference for the planet. Yeah. I think that, again, another another really good message for, for our listeners is is that storytelling, like you say, Nancy, you know, it's, it's a powerful and, and very positive science communication tool, I think. So thank you so much, Nancy, for, for everything that you've shared with us in this episode, both your your story and, and the stories um, around the world as well. Uh, listeners, we hope you've also enjoyed this collaboration. Uh, so Nancy, where can our listeners go in order to find out more about Earth Optimism? Sure. You can go to the Smithsonian and uh, look at the website earthoptimism.si.edu, or you can go to the Cambridge Conservation Initiative and look for earthoptimism.cambridgeconservation.org, or you can just uh, Google Earth Optimism and find a lot of other things that aren't even on all those websites. That's cool. And then, of course, you can go on Twitter and search for hashtag ocean optimism and hashtag earth optimism. I do that every day. And there isn't a day that goes by where I don't find something successful that I didn't know about. I love that. <laughs> Excellent. And I love that your vision is to activate, to move one billion people from overwhelmed to engaged. So hopefully, I think Dan and I uh, uh, will have signed up to that cause. Um, Definitely. Yeah. So Definitely. hopefully some of our listeners too. Hashtag earth optimism. Come on, guys. And where can we follow you uh, on Twitter? And you can follow me at at C-Citizens. I try to post something positive every single day. Brilliant. That's great. Thank you so much, Nancy. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. This Study Shows is a Listen Entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Mariana Hotter and me, Danielle George. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.